This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Summer 2018, Episode 2. Today we have a two-part video as we begin our analysis of Rayview Starlight. The first video, this one, will be all about the context of the all-female musical theater troupe known as the Takarazuka Review. This will be a completely spoiler-free video for Review Starlight, meant only as foundational knowledge for going forward. The second video will be examining this context through the first three episodes of Review Starlight and how it helps us understand the greater story. Takarazuka Review's influence is essential to our study of Review Starlight, but this influence actually reaches fairly deep into anime in general. Osamu Tezuka, largely considered the father of manga, was strongly influenced by his trips to the Review in his youth. In fact, the museum dedicated to his life's work is literally across the street from the Takarazuka Grand Theater and its training school. It's beyond the scope of this video to fully explore this connection. Just note that a lot of manga and anime conventions passed forward even to today have their origin in his work, and significant parts of his aesthetic originate from his familiarity with the Review's productions. This is especially true for shoujo manga, and the two actually continue to influence each other even now. To understand this influence, we will run through a brief history of the Review's founding and ideals, and then the relevant details that influence our show. What would eventually become the Takarazuka Review was founded in 1913 by a railway company, of all things. Takarazuka the city was the terminus of a railway line running from nearby Osaka, and one of the company's founders, Ichizo Kobayashi, fought to increase ticket sales by creating attractions in the city. Takarazuka already had hot springs inns, and they initially built a spa compound to capitalize on this. One of the buildings, dubbed Paradise, housed an indoor, unheated swimming pool. But the pool was too cold for use most of the time, and so was hastily converted into a theater without any specific plans for its use. Kobayashi hit upon the idea of an all-female musical performance group to use this facility, which was now called the Paradise Theater. There were several reasons for this all-female theatrical venture. One was as a departure from Kabuki Theater and its traditions, which, just like the Elizabethan theater of Shakespeare's days, was an all-male ensemble. Even the female parts were played by men who specialized in such a performance. The Review would then further distance itself from the more traditional Japanese theaters by embracing Western-style musicals and instrumentation, as all things Western had become increasingly popular during the Meiji Restoration. The other goal was to sell the Review and the city itself as a type of dream or escape from the urban hell of nearby Osaka, which suffered from its rapid conversion to industrialization. Giving the city novel offerings like an all-female performance troupe was just the thing. Now, the Meiji Civil Code was still in effect at this point, 
meaning women moved at the whim of their head of household, even being sold to labor houses or brothels against their will. Thus, at first, Kobayashi had to convince the parents of prospective girls that the Reiview was not just an elaborate front for prostitution. Doing this required projecting an aura of wholesomeness, of being above reproach, and so began the very strict guidelines that governed the lives of the girls and protected the image of the Takarazuka Review. As Kobayashi wanted to appeal to the entire family as a potential audience, the girls needed to evoke a chaste and innocent impression to the public. The guidelines and mottos designed toward this end would eventually be added to and adjusted over the years and are known as the Violet Code, a set of largely unwritten rules that govern the acceptability of anything to do with the review, on or off stage, and applies to fans and performers alike. This became especially important as the review changed from being a performance troupe only into a full-fledged school for aspirants to its stage. In the present, the first two years of a girl's seven-year contract with the review are spent in the Takarazuka Music School, a very competitive academy from which thousands audition each year, but only 40 or so are accepted. The identity of the review overall has morphed into an academy-like ecosystem, and even past their school years, the players are referred to as students, rehearsal rooms are classrooms, and the writers or directors are sensei. Even the troops are named using a convention for naming school classes. As to these troops, girls completing the two required years of training in acting, music, and dancing are sorted into one of five troops Flower, Moon, Snow, Star, or Cosmos. There is a sixth one as well, but it is more like an alumni troop. Each puts on its own production, and each has its own top star. Uh, more about that in a moment. Before they are sorted into troops, though, at the halfway point in their school training, they are split into one of two groups, those who will play male roles, known as otokoyaku, and those who will play female roles, known as musumeyaku. This is one of the most distinguishing features about the Takarazuko Review. Just as in the Kabuki theater tradition, in which a single gender cast must still fill both roles on stage, the Takarazuko women must portray both males and females. Once sorted, they specialize in performing as their assigned gender role, and learn how to signal masculinity or femininity to the audience. The otokoyaku, the male role players, occupy a special place in this whole phenomena. 90% of the audience of the Takarazuko Review is female, and seeing the otokoyaku perform their craft is the main draw. The otokoyaku is perceived not as a woman pretending at manhood, but as a portrayal of the ideal man. Just as the lavishness of the productions and the richness of the costumes is meant to invoke a certain fantastical aura, the portrayal of masculinity by the Otokoyaku is seen as a similarly fantastical ideal, a dream man that does not exist in reality. They are the real centerpiece of the review, and even a cursory look through promotional material for the theater will bear this out. As such, every troupe has a top star, and that top star is always an Otokoyaku. There will always be a top Musumeyaku player as well, the top female role actress, but they are not top stars. That is exclusively the domain of the male role players. These two together will play the lead male or female roles in every production that their troupe performs so long as they are the ones at the top. Top stars usually remain so for several years at a time. So. Even among the already exclusive company of their fellow Takarazians, being top star is rarefied air indeed. They are the centerpiece of each play or musical, and when the curtain call comes at the end, 
They will be the ones at dead center, position zero, taking the final bow. Another recognizable convention of the Takarazuko review arises from this idealized masculinity, and that is the proliferation of military uniform costumes. While the typical clothing worn by men and women of Japan during the review's early years looked very similar in silhouette, Western-style clothing created a much more obvious gender divide on stage. Emulating masculine body types, such as a V-shaped torso, is greatly aided by costume choice, and military uniforms are both perfectly suited for this and were unmistakably masculine attire. Owing to the dreamlike and fantastical aesthetic of the review, the military uniforms were not intended to reflect period accuracy, but are an exaggerated and stylized version of the originals. Now, as to this Otokoyaku phenomena and the notion of the ideal man, it might seem odd at first that a woman portraying a man could aspire to this idea. But the thought process is that by virtue of being women, they are more familiar with what women actually want out of masculinity. They adopt the parts they like and none of the parts that they don't. If you are an anime fan, I will assert that you are already familiar with the opposite phenomena. The popular representation of girls and women in anime is historically manufactured by males for consumption by a largely male audience. Thus, character designs are not some attempt at photorealistic women, but an idealization of femininity, an exaggeration of the feminine. Hence, large eyes paired with small nose and mouths, hence large head-to-height ratio, hence unrealistic body proportions. Now, this is not a male-dominated realm anymore, and arguably most of the good character design work these days is done by women. However, current designs are still continuations and evolutions of patterns that originated from decades of male-only animators and designers. The idealization of femininity, and what that entails, is already encoded. This leads inevitably to a final topic, which I'll only address briefly. To put it simply, should the Otokoyaku phenomena be thought of as sexual, or the portrayal of men by women be thought of as homoeroticism? You should know from the outset that academics absolutely do not agree on this. Uh, there is no consensus. Some find the idea of women playing both male and female roles in romantic stories to be implicitly sexual. Others assert that having both actors be women actually removes the eroticism subtext and leaves it as purely romantic. That Violet Code that I mentioned earlier pretty well avoids all comments on sexuality. In fact, one gets the impression that it is a subject that the Review pretends doesn't exist. It's worth pointing out that all the performers for the Review are single women. Retirement is forced upon an impending marriage. What's more, this rule is overwhelmingly supported by the performers themselves. As one academic puts it, this support reveals the strong identification of the Takarizian, and especially the Otoko Yaku, as the shared dream lover of fans and fellow performers, a fantasy which would be destroyed by the sexual nuances of a formal relationship with an individual man. Those of you familiar with idol culture will recognize this thought process. Now, none of that says anything about whether the fans find the portrayals erotic or romantic or neither nor whether it is the masculinity being portrayed that is enticing, or that it's women doing the performance that's enticing, and nor does it say anything about how the performers themselves relate to one another, or what they consider their true identity. As I say all the time, interpretation is subjective, and ultimately, that is how we will have to leave the subject. So, 
That is the Takarazuka Review in brief, more than 100 years of history and influence. And all because of a swimming pool that was too cold. What are the odds? Like I've said before, the difference between fiction and real life is that fiction has to make sense. Hopefully then, this video will help the fictional world of Rayview Starlight make a little more sense as well. To aid that, our next video is a look at the first three episodes of Rayview Starlight and how the context of the Takarazuka Rayview and its music school can be felt. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.